0: The first reading is from Ephesians 5, 1 to 3. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. The second part is 1 Corinthians 6. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies.
1: Morning. What's killing you? Uh, is the the question over these five Sundays we started last week, and what is killing you on the soul? sickness level? What's the stuff that's got the potential to suck the life out of you? In 2 Corinthians, Paul has this phrase that though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed. That's how it should be in Christ, but that's not always how it is. There is stuff that threatens this quality of interior life. There are things that can get in and disrupt. There are things Um, that can crush us on the inside. There is the sin that so easily entangles. That's what we're covering these Sundays. Last week it was hurry sickness, and this week it's pornography and masturbation. At which point, I should say, if you're visiting this morning, if you've just walked in for the first time, then we're so glad you're here. I'm sure this is not the sermon, the talk that you imagined you just were walking in on. But we make no apology, actually, for talking about stuff that matters, for stuff that's real issues in our lives. We don't want to be talking about... Theological ideas, you know, words, sentences about God that don't have an actual landing in the substance of our lives. The fact of the matter is the events of God's involvement with man. Ultimately, the, the, um, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This has all sorts of implications for every area of our lives. So here we go. The other thing I wanted to say from the outset... Is this is going to be no exercise in 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 piling up shame on on some people over there who, who who suffer with this sort of thing. When we were sketching out the topics for this "What's Killing Me" teaching series, I jumped at the two, um, the first two that I could that sort of came to mind that were um, the issues that that I knew had the potential to to set the life out of me, and and so. Um, and so to speak humbly and, and honestly out of that sort of place with that kind of um, understanding, really, of, of how, how it can be, but also out of that place to offer some substantial hope and transformation, and things can change. So, pornography. Can you remember the first time that you viewed sexually explicit material? For me, I was eight years old. In the cub scouts and we were walking through the woods and then suddenly littered over the floor in the woods there were these cutouts from some dirty magazine just all over the floor and this bunch of eight nine year old boys were um we were you know something like, like deeply fascinated something like caught our attention there was something deeply exciting about this and it could only have been 20 seconds before the the people who were our, our leaders realised what was happening quickly, like shivied us along. Only twenty seconds, but I can still remember it. This is we're talking about powerful, powerful forces within us this morning. It's comparable to a a drug addict, a heroin addict's first hit of heroin. That's the the extent, the the powerful cocktail of neurochemicals that is involved in this stuff. And it's everywhere, and it's normal, and and it's unprecedentedly available, and affordable, accessible, and anonymous, which is the frightening thing with it. Research suggests that this is a live issue a struggle for 55% of Christian women. The percentage is higher for men, and it's right across the age range, so this is a personal struggle for most of us here in this room, on some level, and of course it can be a really painful issue for spouses, it's a really difficult issue for parents learning to navigate this age. I heard someone say that, you know, giving your teenager un- unmonitored Wi-Fi access in their bedroom is probably just like putting a filing cabinet full of um, pornography magazines and telling them not to look at it. You know, that's, that's the situation that we are dealing with. Unprecedented access, this is worth us talking about, right? Is it really so bad? Where's the harm, really? You know, some people actually describe pornography as, as freedom. Um, you know, as long as it's consensual, non-coercive in production and all that, people are free to enjoy whatever they are free to enjoy. And who are we to judge? You know, if you don't like it, you don't need to click on it. It's just a correlative of free speech, isn't it? And freedom of expression, and that's, that's a good thing, surely. Other things are much worse. You know, people who are bothered to spend a Sunday morning thinking about pornography, they need to start worrying about things that really matter, things like global issues of justice and racism and, uh, you know, global poverty, that sort of thing. And anyway, the church's attitude to sex, that's where the, the unhealthiness comes in, right? It's just sex. It's not evil. Nothing to be afraid of. All of this chat about chastity... You know, that's, that's the stuff that is bound to failure because we're just talking about human nature, right? And anyway, isn't pornography actually helpful? You know, doesn't it serve a function of, of, of demystifying sex? Getting rid of the stigma, the taboo around it. Does it help us along in our sex lives? And for the individual, does it help them find a place of release? You know, a way of expressing their sexuality? It can be a useful comfort, can't it? A solace in the loneliness. Well, what does the Bible say? And this comes as, straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' key teaching. And what does he have to say around some of this stuff? He says this. You have heard it said that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. But I say to you, Whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery. And it's framed like this, not because this is a male-only problem, but because women in the the laws surrounding adultery at the time were kind of regarded, um, treated akin to property. And so adultery was akin to stealing, stealing another man's wife. And so Jesus' words into this situation actually give women a radical value beyond all you know, issues of objectification and property, all of that stuff. And he goes on to talk about, you know, gouging out your eye or chopping off your hand, this sort of extreme figurative language. It's unapologetically high, his moral vision, extreme, serious. There's no sense of settlement with some of the kind of gray areas or some of the muddy waters that we otherwise live in. Paul jumps on this bandwagon in some of the, the readings we've heard and he's part of this Jesus movement and he has this, shares this unapologetically high, extreme um, vision for our sexual morality and how we are to, to order our lives. And he says, let there be not even a hint of sexual immorality. How are we supposed to get our heads around where the New Testament is coming from? In 2018, living within a very muddy culture, where porn is so normal, where the biggest TV phenomenon at the moment is Love Island, where, as far as I can tell, you have unusually beautiful people filmed only in their swimwear, obsessing about woefully casual relationships. How are we to understand where the New Testament is coming from? Well, let's knock off some of these, these questions. Is pornography freedom? Well, what is Freedom, biblically speaking, freedom is not defined as lawlessness, not defined as going our own way and free to do whatever we want. That is actually prison. Freedom is something that is found in surrender, and it's this emerging gift that we can discover. C.S. Lewis, he writes about the prison of ourselves and how almost the main work of life is to be drawn out of this prison that is self-serving. And out onto this path of selfless love that we were talking a bit about last week. Ephesians says it, the imitators of God live a life of love. Our problem is that we don't start out on this path. We start out stuck in the mud over here somewhere. And it's the grace of God that picks us up, sets us on our two feet, and gives us a chance at doing something different. Gives us a chance at discovering freedom. The freedom we've been singing about as we recover, as we're restored, as we learn to walk along this path. We really don't have a clue about freedom until the grace of God, until we surrender to the grace of God in our lives. Romans 8 talks about the, the glorious freedom of the children of God. Freedom is not about messing around in the mud on our own. Freedom is about learning, having God set us on our two feet again and learning to walk in relationship with the good God of it all. Other things worse? Issues like systemic racism, global poverty, more worthy of our attention. I remember being in vicar school. You've always got to be careful when you start drawing diagrams during a talk like this. I had a friend who who, who was doing a youth talk on some weekend away, and they were doing this diagram, and then the, the whole place was just erupting, and they hadn't a clue what was going on until they looked at kind of what they hadn't an anticipated drawing. Anyway, this um, my professor down back at Vicar College. He was explaining the structure of the ethics course, Christian moral reasoning. The uh, the lecture course was called, and in the first lecture, he drew a little circle, and then a bigger circle around it, and then a bigger circle around that to demonstrate the. Um, it's a little bit like Dave Worth's T-shirt. If you want to, take, if you're near where you're sat, you can. See, and there it is. And, um, and he was demonstrating. Uh, so the little, first little circle, what was that? This is the ethics around questions of the body and um, sexual ethics. And uh, then the bigger one was around questions of structuring the family and marriage and divorce and things like that. And then the bigger one, with the, ethical, the towards the end of the course, were the ethical questions around um, society and government and pacifism and, and those sorts of big questions. Of course, of course, a religious moral vision that would have so much to say about what we do with our genitals, but nothing about the plight of the poor, would be horribly deficient. Equally, the moral vision that would have be fixated on the, the latest political issue, the big um, structural injustice, but has got no concern to promote, support, defend, committed, stable relationships that are the, the platform in which children, people are raised, is badly limited. Worth mentioning, of course, that Jesus' lofty vision, his teaching on the lust stuff comes right alongside all of the other stuff, on anger, on violence, on money, on prayer, on looking after the poor, on anxiety. It all collides, it's all connected, it all is joined up, it all absolutely matters. All of life is sacred. The treatment of our bodies, the arrangement of our relationships, issues of justice and violence. Take pornography, tell me it doesn't touch on all of the above. However, Paul does pick out sexual, in one of the readings you might have heard, he does, and it's a little bit confusing, he does pick out sexual sins as a category of their own. And what's he saying? Something like, all the other sins we do are outside the body, but this is a sin that happens against the body. And a better translation might be against yourself in this. That's what he's saying. He's saying, wake up to this little fledgling church community that's begun this, following this, this way of Jesus, this, this Jesus movement. And he's like, wake up to the sex stuff really matters. You know, every other sin is, is like, happening outside in those bigger circles. The sex sin stuff is happening against you in this little circle. And wake up to the fact that this really matters and it affects your, it affects your life into all the other stuff as well. And it affects your existence in this, this wider world. At its heart, the whole of the biblical witness, the Jesus moral vision, is all about seeing people properly. It's about being appropriately pro-human. Even when the humans in question are your enemy. Because there is something irreducible and unfathomable about another human being. We are made in the image of God. So when it comes to pornography, I think it was a pope who said something like this The problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little. A human being reduced down to a naked body on a screen to be used and consumed in a waste of shame. Those people on the screen, they are worth so much more than that, even if they don't know it. You are worth so much more than in that little way to participate in that moment. Okay, but what about the church attitudes to sex being unhealthy? I've got some sympathy here because at times the church has been... Uh, very guilty of pushing a negative, very negative, fearful view of sex. One theologian looks back over some episodes of church history and concludes that that um, after sex had been forbidden on Sundays, of course, and Fridays, of course... Um, and on different, all the different feast days dotted throughout the year, and over particular seasons like Lent, um, there were just 44 days, out of 365 days, there were just 44 days left for godly, church-approved uh, sex to take place. That fearful, negative attitude in parts of the church tradition is simply unbiblical. Um, just read Song of Songs, this, this book of erotic love poetry, that's made it into the Bible somehow. Of course it has. So it should, because sex is this very good gift. A very good gift for at least three reasons. Number one, sex points beyond itself to a greater reality. The consummation that we're all aching for, whether we have words for it or not, the the deep longing for connection, for intimacy, for union, for perfect ecstasy, for rest. That consummation is coming the sweet consummation between God and man. That's the story that we find ourselves in. That's where it's heading. Sex points to that greater reality. Number two, within that bigger picture, sex has got to be this, this picture of a whole life union. It's not something that can be summed up in, in sort of neat talk about technique or anything like that. This is something far more significant. It's signifying something. It's communicating something profound. My favorite line in the marriage ceremony, it goes something like this. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. With my body, I honor you. Sex is perhaps the most profound way we have of saying, I love you, all of me, for all of you, until death. And opening up the possibility of, of, of having children with someone, that's, that is the most profound communication, right? You're basically saying, my whole future is bound up with you. And thirdly, sex is tied to our transformation. Pushing back on desire is fruitful, is good for us. And that's quite a countercultural thing to say. It's about training our instincts, not chasing our instincts. It's about training our instincts, not chasing after them. So one of these paths, training our instincts, leads to selfless love for the other. The other, chasing after our instincts, leads to a consumption of the other. All of this, all of this stuff, is part of a um, part of our countercultural witness to the world. We are the weirdos who believe in resurrection. Don't forget we are affirming with all that we are that there is so much more to this life than collecting up enough stuff or enough sexual experience or whatever it is. So what we do with our wallets, what we do with our sex, is a powerful sign that points ahead to a wider significance to this life. Sex is inescapably laden with meaning. That's where the church is coming from on all this stuff. It's not to be fearful or negative, neither is it to be unquestioningly positive and affirming of each and every sexual appetite. What it is, is a good go at properly acknowledging both the precious value and power of sex. Can pornography be helpful? Doesn't it help to demystify sex, to break the power of taboo? Doesn't it? help couples along in their sex life? Doesn't it provide a solace for the single person? The stats simply don't bear this out. Negative correlations exist between porn use and sexual satisfaction. The more porn, the less satisfied. It's associated with various sexual dysfunctions. There are problematic comparisons that come in between your real-life partner and the porn performer. It offers a miseducation. Sex becomes about performance rather than gift. It skews perception of what is normal, overestimating the prevalence of extreme behaviours. Here's the sad thing. There's a stat 56% of American divorce cases cited one partner as having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. It raises expectation and demand for sex and simultaneously reduces our ability for it. What about porn as a solace or outlet for the single person? Actually, the opposite is true. Porn use is associated with loneliness and depression, and it's a significant hindrance to forming real relationships and healthy connections with people. But what about our needs? Don't we have sexual needs? I think the, the whole concept of, of sexual needs is an unhelpful import from Freudianism. Paul writes, "Ultimately, the body is not made for sex; it is made for the Lord." Yes, we've got desires, we've got longing, we've got hormones, but we don't actually need sex. What we need is the Lord. So a lived, celibate singleness is not to be thought of as some like mere waiting room for marriage. It is a powerful sign to the wider mystery of this existence, that goes above and beyond biological urges. Masturbation, I told you we'd, we'd get there. Um, the Bible doesn't men- mention it, which could instantly kind of depower some of the anxiety or you know, all-dominating concern that can, that can take over. Um, C.S. Lewis does mention masturbation. So um, this is virtually scripture, isn't it, for, for, for some of us. Um, he wrote this wise letter um, to a guy called Keith Mason. You can, in 1956, he penned this. I don't suppose he imagined churches reading it out um, years later. Um, you can Google it to get the whole thing. It's, it's brilliant. But he talks about um, the harem of imaginary partners, that work against us ever getting out and uniting with a real person. The harem that is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments on our part, can be endowed with attractions that no real person could ever rival. And in this fantasy world, we are always adored. We are always the perfect lover. No demand is made on our unselfishness. Our vanity is never hurt. And later on he says, and this was the quote I alluded to, earlier, he says, after all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prisons that we were born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process, this process of coming out of ourselves and along this path of selfless love, of concern, of energy, of time for the other. So it turns out that pornography and associated behavior is about as powerful as heroin. It's about As freeing as heroin, it's about as helpful as heroin. So now we're clear on all that. That should be the end of it, right? Except that like a dog returning to its vomit, as the prophet goes, we find ourselves returning to that website. I feel so stupid, said one man to me recently. Apostle Paul writes, I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not do it's what i do he's talking about this battle between the the flesh and the spirit between between the old self and the new self why do we keep on doing it so jamie ivy is a brave christian woman writer and i wholeheartedly commend this book to you if only if you only knew my unlikely and avoidable Journey story of becoming free. If you want something to read by the pool uh, this summer, get yourself a copy of this. It's the story of her life. And um, she's a mother of four. Uh, She um, talks about how, you know, back in the day with boyfriends, she would um, be watching pornography. Then it became something she did on her own. And then she became a Christian and then um, got married. And she thought all of this was way behind her. And then she writes this. All the variables were right for me to seek out some sort of comfort. Aaron was out of town, that's her husband. All the kids were in bed. I was teaching at church the next morning. Yes, you read that right. And my stress level was rather high. By the way, the, um, the book is not about all about this stuff. There's one chapter that's touching on this stuff. It's uh, broader than that, just in case you... Anyway. Um, My stress level was rather high. To search for pornography at our house, you have to know how to beat the system. You can't just type in naked and get what you want because we've installed safeguards all over our computers. But I was lonely and tired and I started searching. But which words were generic enough to sound reasonable, not to be flagged on the software, but still to take me to the websites I wanted to reach? I was basically a thesaurus that night. I felt weird doing this. I knew it was wrong, yet something inside me craved those images more than I desired doing what was right how did this happen? I'm a pastor's wife, people invite me and trust me to speak at their churches, I love Jesus with all of my heart, I have four kids I'm happily married, I have a great sex life she goes on to say how she uh, that night failed to get past the safeguards that they've installed in their their house and their system but she wound up nevertheless wracked by a sense of guilt failure and, and afraid of her weakness How does that happen? Why is this stuff such a common, besetting sin? The reason is, is it's because both a highly addictive and extremely effective form of escapism, that soothing rush of neurochemicals, that that harem of imaginary partners that make no demand and make us feel like the perfect lover, make us feel better. And it all says to us, this is what you want, this is what you need when you're stressed when you're tired, when you're lonely, until it's over, and then you don't feel better, and you know this is not at all what you want. So what to do? What do we do? Three things. Number one is confess to God. And I mean taking a moment to stop and take stock of, of, of reality for yourself. How is it really? Notice. Kind of face up to that and then turn that into your prayer. Open, Turn that into your sort of internal conversation with God and say you're sorry. Ask for his help. Ask for his forgiveness and watch things begin to change. Number two, is confessed to somebody else. Jamie, um, in her book, says that you know before she got up in front of the church to teach that morning, she she needed to to tell someone, and so she got her friend Annie that morning, gave her the eyes to like, come on, I need to need to sit, and and just told her what had happened, and her friend Annie did not look at her with disgust, and how could you, and any of that sort of stuff. She looked her in the eye, tenderly, and said to her, those words from, from Romans again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, announcing the forgiveness of God over her friend's life. This is the, this is the privilege that we have with one another in those vulnerable, sharing the deepest and darkest sorts of friendships. That out loud confession, in my own experience, changes everything. That's when the the light rushes, rushes in. That's when the hope rushes in. That's when you realize, in Christ, we're not defined by our failures. We're defined by his sufficiency, his goodness. And there's all sorts of life that comes rushing in into those moments. So... Confess to God. Confess to someone else. And then we've got to join the fights, you know, or flee, as Paul puts it, or join the resistance, or stand up and start walking in a different direction, or get on with that journey. You can choose your own metaphor, whatever works for you. The point is, it's going to take some determined, deliberate effort to to get on board with with break. It's this powerful stuff. It's addictive stuff we're talking about. It's effective escapism, and so but it's not helpful, and so we need to make a determined effort to go a different direction. Here's a few things um, that you might find helpful. Interrupt the access. We talked about how it's accessible and anonymous. You can interrupt the access, and you can interrupt the anonymity of it. So when I was going to university, um, about to go into a room, my own little room, need a laptop to take with you to university, and there was a sort of unspoken, tacit agreement between, between me and my dad. We sort of just both were like leaning towards this. There was this laptop in the house that had been kind of... Um, the internet connection within it had been disabled for the purposes of keeping it free from viruses for something to do with my dad's work. And so there was this sort of um, unconnectable laptop in the house. And I took that one to university. Um, I don't think I would have survived, truth be told, if, if I'll have, you know bravely gone in with full all sorts of connection Um, that interruption was so helpful so good for me Disney have collaborated with someone to produce a little device called the circle Google it it's this thing that is no technological wizardry required it plugs in upstream to your router your wife your internet connection in the home and makes your home a safe controlled full of light no secrets sort of place. Um, I think it's about £80. That might be the best £80 you spend all year. You could downgrade your phone. That's another way of interrupting If your mobile phone is a problem, go and get a brick. Walk into the shop. You might even get some money back for it, you know. <laughs> and you can use that to buy the Disney Circle. But, um, you know, just do whatever it takes, you know. This is your life you're talking about, you know. This, is, this, this affects everything. Okay, interrupt the secrecy. So for years I've had that software, there's a few different options that um, monitors your your internet activity and sends it to your friends. Sends a little log of it that just, it's this unprecedented access and anonymity. It's so abnormal, these, these conditions we're living in. Wouldn't it be wonderful if within our church community it was normal for us to just be opening windows on all of this stuff, sharing, because we know actually we're not strong enough to, to, to carry on. Someone said that genetically, perhaps, um, a man is, is strong enough for when a, a, a beautiful, abnormally beautiful woman, one, fully clothed, walks in the room, that he can hold himself back and not you know, act on that. The situation is very different <laughs> right now. Um, let's do whatever it takes. Um, shared access to all accounts. Laura's got all my passwords. For everything, she so can routinely check my messengers. My, you know, it's just this is just a really good way um, to be. Um, take care. <laughs> um, how do you want? How do you want to, to be? What do you want to to? What do you want to happen moving forward? You know, this is. I recommend it to you. Um, me. And Rich started using this little questionnaire once in a while that forces us to have. Um, awkward conversations about all sorts of things. And again, it's an attempt just to like live in the light as the Ephesians reading, Ephesians 5, goes on to um, advocate for the people of God not to develop the potential for the little dark corners of secrecy and dysfunction to, to carry on. If you're a parent, talk with your teenager about someone's going to talk with them. Let it be you. Know the words. Again, just draw it into a sort of honest, healthy conversation that can recognize what's going on. What are you gonna do when someone offers to send you that picture? That's a good conversation to have. What are you gonna do when someone asks you for that picture? That's another good conversation to have. Um, you can interrupt, So you can interrupt access, you can interrupt secrecy, you can interrupt the patterns of behavior around this stuff as well. So if there's a situation that is always the problem one for you, do something about it. Do something about it upstream. So when you're lonely, stressed, tired, and you know you're going to be alone that evening, leave the laptop in work, if that's, what it, if that's what it takes. If you're traveling alone, why not take a buddy with you? Um, why not go and stay with friends instead of the hotel that you know will probably trip you up again and again? Um, with the guys, I've got... Th- two other guys that I meet up and pray with, to just share life, um, warts and all. Uh, And with them, we've got this little commitment never to turn on the private browsing mode on our devices, just as a um, upstream, before it's too late, kind of little thing, helpful, um, promise to each other. All of this stuff only works within the context of those relationships. That's what we need. And so, to that end, here's the plan we've got a little list of some safe people who are up for having this conversation with you. And um, who have we got? Steven Rio Rourke, Philippa and Paul Barton, Heather Christmas, Rich and Kath, um, Paul Swan. Hopefully one of these people is approachable enough. There may be other people that are the, the obvious person for you to start entering into this conversation with. Brilliant, go for it. Um, if you don't know who, where to start, come and find one of us. You can just start it off with a little email that says, hey, can we talk? Or there's something I'd like to talk about. And then we'll meet up for a coffee and we'll have it. We're not going to break your confidence. We're not going to be shocked and appalled. There will be some level of understanding. And the advantage of some of these people is that they will, by default, connect us. So, off the back of that initial break the silence sort of conversation, wouldn't it be wonderful? If we found ourselves folded into some little groups, some close enough community where we can, as a habit, talk about this stuff, support each other in it, um, ask each other more difficult questions about these secrets, about all sorts of other stuff as well. Um, that seems to me like it would be a great, wonderful, healthy move for our community. Many people, many of us, are already doing this, but we welcome you in. It is the way of. Uh, It's what we need, I think, if we're going to have a chance. You're not on your own. The grace of God is big enough for you. Transformation can, does, and will happen as we learn to walk in freedom together. So shall we stand? Let's pray. Acknowledging again that it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And so we trust you enough to bring to mind the reality of the situation for us. And we offer it to you as our prayer, as our confession. Perhaps is our desperate desperate prayer. And thank you for your grace. Thank you for the hope that bubbles up inside. Thank you for the light. So would you restore us in your image remake us, set our feet on the path again, teach us to walk, give us courage, give us opportunities, opportunities to, to do this together, to break the silence, to walk into healing. Pray, come, Holy Spirit. Bring your inspiration. Bring your sense of possibility. Bring your renewal of our imaginations. Bring us into your life, your fully alive sort of life. Amen.